Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, people have had a chance to uh, uh, grab a quick uh, refreshment. Um, uh, so, yeah, let's just dive straight into uh, some of the answers to uh, Gerard's uh, question uh, there. Let's just see if we can speak to um, a couple of people that have uh, posted uh, comments. Uh, so, Let's see if we can speak to uh, Will. Hi, Will. Hi, you all right? Yeah, well, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good. I'm really enjoying it. Thank you. Thanks very much. Whereabouts are you tuning in from, Will? Uh, I'm just uh, south of London. Okay, cool. Excellent stuff. Um, so I think, Will, do you just want to reiterate the point that you made on, your, on, on the chat in response to the question? Yeah, so um, this has been a really good timing for me, actually, because um, my week sessions have been all around scanning. So the ones that I'm planning for this week. And yeah, I've just been planning around um, using the same colour bibs as um, the different the other team have tops. Um, so then they really have to look and um, see what obviously so they can see that they've got the bib on. So they know that they're on their team, but it's harder than, say, the different colours that you'd normally use. So I think it almost forces them to have that extra look to make sure. Well, uh, what do you think, Gerard, in terms of the, the, those, the, those kind of tools? I think it's really clever. I think anything you do, as long as you've got a rationale behind what you do and why, um, then that's OK. I think... It'd be interesting. Obviously, I don't know his con your contacts, Will, or the players that you're working with. Um, I think it's important that anyone listening, what works for Will and what works in Will's environment might not work if, if I was to do the same approach with, uh, let's say, the NEFA boys under-19s. Or one night, it could work absolutely great. So it's just understanding that, you know, it will change. But I think, yeah, you know, it's I've often done it very similar, but uh, rather than have the same bibs, I've had no bibs. And straight away, you have to, because we're so used to bibbing players up, aren't we? I've often gone, no, no's on your team. And I've mm. done that in grassroots environments and academy environments where they're all in the same uh, kit out, they're playing kit or training kit. And I would double-edge that in the sense of, one, you've got a nose on your team, probably similar to Will, and they've got to look for it. So if it's the same, what other distinctable factors can they see? Is it the way that Ryan moves? Is it the colour boots that Spencer's wearing? Is it his hairdo? Is it something else? They've got to look for things that they can identify in certain players. Because if we were playing on the street, we wouldn't have bibs, would we? But yet your nose on your yeah. team. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is if they give the ball away, they're not actually giving the ball away. They're giving it to another player, really, you know, because we're all part of the same team. So... In some ways, you're you're encouraging them to to find a, a blue shirt type of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, cool. I think it's great that Will's thinking about different stuff. Good. Thanks, Will. Um, nice one. Let's go uh, to um, uh, Douglas. Um, listen, your answer was a bit more in terms of um, how you define your coach um, uh, feedback. There, um, are you are you there, Douglas? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing? All yeah, good. Really, thank you. Really good. Really good. Again, Douglas, do you want to just reiterate your response? I thought it was really interesting. 
Yeah, just that I feel like it's very hard to teach, you know, scanning. I'm working with youth girls. Um, and, you know, I'm, but I, you know, I've been taking Raymond Verheyen's classes and position, moment, direction, and speed are really, you know, the things you think about when in decision making. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll take a practice and we'll just work on position. You know, we'll work on um, moment, timing, uh, or direction, you know, which direction. And, but I loved how Will was saying to think about the future. You're trying to create a future and that external focus is huge because um, you, you don't want them thinking, you want them in their head, um, but you gotta create good habits um, in the kids because they're gonna be unconscious when they play, you know? And you don't want them thinking because if they're sitting thinking about things, then they're not really playing anymore. Um, so, you know, I just feel like I need to get better in my guided questions. Um, and, you know, that's why I was so interested in coming on today and listening because it's a very hard thing to teach, especially here in America. It's not taught at all. Really interesting point there about the, the, the sort of consciousness aspect, uh, Gerard. And, you know, for fans of Raymond, you know, the, the, the absolute utopia is the unconsciously competent player. Yeah. That's me at 16, 17, of course. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that, that, that's what we're all striving towards achieving, eh? Yeah, I think there's two really good, well, a few good points, but two that start to me, what, what you made there, Douglas, which is, one, players have got a lot to think about when they're playing the game. There's already a hell of a lot of things going on. So if we're inhibiting that process, it's not making their ability to play instinctively and interact with the environment easier. The fact is making it more difficult. And I love his point, which is great. It's around, and he's put this in the group chat as well, around guided questions. Um, and I think that's the skill of the coach. It's how do you phrase questions? But they don't always have to be a question that you want a, a verbal response to. It's often, you know, it's more like, don't tell me, show me. Because you want the players to physically go and, and do that. So the question's becoming almost that challenge. But then I think the key for... Douglas and everyone else is when you do ask that question because you've identified it and you've you've identified the importance of that external look is how do you notice so it's the art of noticing what are you observing do you spend enough time watching that individual player so if I've just set a challenge to Spence and I've asked him that question I can't then go off and which we all do and I'm focused on and then I see something break down over there and I'm, and it's not to say you can't but it's having an understanding of I've got to pay attention to Spencer. I've just given him something. What am I noticing? So how do you become more skilled in your observation in where you look? And can you be clever in um, almost playing in the future? If we want players to play in the future, you've got to play in the future. So anticipate what could happen next, create some problems for him and be that problem setter rather than a problem solver for the player. You know, we should be giving them more problems and answers and then watch um, I'm just curious if I can ask a question is Douglas you're in the States now where are you working I am working in Baltimore Maryland oh great um, are you, what age group I work with U13 girls um, for the Maryland ODP program and the club program but we've also created a, a software program and we're starting to work with different uh, teams 
um, pro uh, high college teams. We created a software that can measure like decision-making and measure uh, communication and these types of things. But communication scanning is a large part of communicating yeah. with your environment. Oh, cool. So another one for people to even potentially reach out to, reach out to Doug, find out what you're doing. And I'm just curious, just last question. I don't, I'm conscious of time as well. <laughs> yeah. but, um, what, have you done your D license or your B or your C, Douglas? I've done my C and I'm C uh, US, but I'm doing, uh, I got my UEFA C and Belfast. So I'm doing my UEFA B and Belfast this summer. Great. Because you, I mean, You've probably seen a, a change. That's one of the things that's coming through US soccer now is around guided questions and how you can become more skilled at that. Um, no, brilliant. No, thanks for sharing. That's really, really useful to know your context as well. I've got a question for Douglas as well. I've got a question. Oh. How's it gone? It's gone. Oh. I was asking what level it was on uh, with Raymond. Um, I saw our, our friend, Ryan, uh, Keith Mayer. Yeah, uh, no, I was just going to take one, uh, one more. Hi, Keith. Hi, fellas. How are you? Keith. Well, well, thanks, Keith. You made a really interesting comment there about the use of an iPad uh, to, to, to code. Really interesting. I once saw Dan Carter, the fly after the All Blacks, use something similar. Uh, you, you're obvious, you, what, what led you to use that then? Uh, it was really trial and error. What, one of the centre-backs that I used to work with was really getting him to recognise danger from set players, predominantly corners. And, and as a consequence, if he wasn't doing that now, which eye, because he was literally, do I pray on his left or his right, uh, right eye, was, was up for grabs. So it was really very raw, uh, but as a consequence to the actual practice that we were, that we were conducting, it would be remiss or probably it's certainly not research. I certainly didn't do it at the time just to see whether there were any benefits in the usage of that patch. From his perspective, he seemed to believe as it would and it worked, whether it worked for everybody is another thing, but you're then using a slightly different sense as opposed to, because that's an internal thing and other questions are posed in regards to do you use something external? Well. I think if we're, it, it's, it's such an interesting topic and obviously Gerard's doing lots of research in it, but that's how I've used it. I've used it with midfield players as well. And, uh, you know, it, it's which the prominent eye, is it the left eye or right eye? And that could be tested, we know that. So again, it just, we're using senses and this is really what it's about, isn't it? We're, we're intensifying and hopefully amplifying the, the ability for players to, to pick up uh, stimuli from, from something else and then being able to encode and decode the information in front. So that's really all, all I did at that time, but it's many, many years ago when, uh, when I did that. Yeah, Jared, the, the, the use of, of, of patches, like I said, I've seen that lots in rugby union with the fly halves, force them to move their heads, physically yeah. move their heads. What do you think about that? I think it's great. Great to see you, Keith. How are you doing, mate? You all right? I'm good, mate. Thank you. Um, no, I think it's incredible because there's a few key words that he's used there, which is, again, it'd be interesting to know, I'd love to know more, is was there a dominance in potentially one eye over another? And was that a way to strengthen one eye over another? I don't know. 
um, or I know you said it was up for grabs, which one? I think it's great because all you're doing, the skill of the coach is using Keith's words, you're either amplifying or you're dampening certain things. And often that can be related to like a constraints-led approach. And that's exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to find ways to challenge players. So if an eye patch is one and it's forcing them to have to do something else, again, you've posed a challenge to that individual player and potentially you're strengthening or you're heightening something in, in a certain area. Um, and I think the key is always, and I know Keith will have done this, it's having that conversation with the player so that they know why you're doing that. You know, what's the benefit for them? I think it's great. I think anything that you can come up with to find clever ways to improve that player, why not? As long as there's a rationale. Brilliant. Thanks for, thanks for coming on, Keith. Pleasure. Thank you, fellas. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, we could keep going on for that for another half an hour at least, but I know we've got yeah. other stuff to cover, Spencer, so I'm going to pass the bat on before I lose us even more. Yeah, so, so Gerard, we, we've seen Antonio Conte running up and down the touchline <laughs> like a madman, haven't we? Uh, for Spurs recently, I mean, we, we see, you know, we see it in grassroots football, we see it at the the elite level. I mean, is there really a place for this? Does it make any difference to players? Do you know what? I'd be interested to uh, have Osh on this. I might send the video recording to him, <laughs> see, see what he says, because I know he, he might came me on some stuff. Because I know when he delivered with us, um, even on some of the stuff he did with the Pro or the A licence, he would often say, like, what's their identity in their context? And it's hard because you've got to be comfortable in your own skin. Um, my preference would be that I, I think it's unnecessary. I think it's it's not my preference. It's not my style. And I think as well, there's a danger that, and I've seen this with certain academy managers, certain head coaches, is that, when they're there, everyone describes them as, oh, wow, what a great presence. You know, you've mentioned Conte and there's many others like him, isn't there? But then the danger becomes that the players only respond when he does that. So if he's not there, they always talk about the, the intensity of the session or the quality drops. If he's jumping up and down like a madman on the sideline in a match day, does it, does it go up? Why should the players only respond based on how he's... And often coaches are acting like that because they have to feel like they're in the game and they're involved and they're kicking every ball. But there's an argument to suggest that, from my perspective, that um, you're probably missing a lot of stuff that you need to pay attention to. I think it's probably better try and be as calm as you can and be sat down, ideally, because if you sat down, that's definitely going to encourage you to uh, look and speak rather than speak. Um, if you stood up, you're probably going to get yourself more involved in, in animation. It's not to say that you can't do that, but I would be more towards, and certainly at every level really, but grassroots level, why do kids play the game? So I would encourage anyone to look at Amanda Vizek. Amanda Vizek, fun maps, why do kids play the game? What makes playing the game fun? And a lot of the reasons are, for the reasons that we'll all know that are true, which is that they play because they want to um, play with their mates, find their own solutions, be creative, be encouraged, blah, blah, blah. They don't necessarily want to be playing for a coach who's putting them under pressure, who's making it about them, who's yelling at them from the sideline, taking away creativity, when actually, you know, there's a great opportunity just to let the kids play. I was fortunate, I watched the um, the Premier League, uh, did the futsal 
conference um, conference festival type tournament recently at St George's Park uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was there for with the FA and you had Chelsea you had Man United City Arsenal Villa etc and honestly some of the best coaches I saw were the ones that were sat down setting the kids challenges kids were losing by the way and it doesn't mean that they sit there and they're being um, like silent like, you know, the backing off. They were actually being really encouraging. And in one of the games, the team ended up coming back and absolutely destroying the team. The coach was so calm. He was pulling players because they, they clearly had like a game plan of setting them challenges. And it was very clear, whatever they've worked on in training, he was linking it to their individual development plans and so on. And he was making reference to that. And I could hear him because I was stood more or less next to the bench. And I could hear what they were talking about. Because <clears throat> if anyone's gone there, St. George's Park, it's in the indoor futsal course, so you're pretty close to the pitch. Yeah, for me, that's how I would be. I, I would make sure that players know that you're there to support them, but give them the freedom that they can they can play. You don't need to be animated and acting like a madman. Do you think there's an expectation in football? As if you look at rugby, you know, the, you look at uh, Eddie Jones, he's up in the gods observing, he's got the screen there in tennis, nothing allowed to speak to the players, are you? Cricket team manager, but it just seems to be football where there's an expectation, I think, from fans, isn't it, to see that the manager's passionate and they're getting involved in the game. But you don't seem to be the sports. Well, yeah, I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head, haven't you? I think fans, technical directors, some directors of football, some whoever, depending on what your role is, they have that expectation that they think you have to, what does good coaching look like? Or they have this belief parents might perceive that as, wow, he's a really strong coach or He's passionate, he's enthusiastic. Somebody else might label that guy as aggressive or whatever. So it's it's interesting. Um, for me, I think you've made some great examples there with, you know, whether it's Eddie Jones, whether it's whoever, getting a bird's eye view, but being really purposeful in where are you looking? Where so am I studying how our how our team defends, or am I looking at just the back four? And that's all I'm looking at today. Is there clearly defined roles within the within the team of who's looking for what and who's going to feedback what? And in doing so, you're creating clarity in the message. I know that's why, you know, Palace are flying. To, not to name drop, but Osh was very, very good at this. And he's, he's been an outstanding number two, you know, his whole career. And there's no surprise that Palace are through to the semis right now in, in, the, in the FA Cup and the flying with uh, Vieira. He's very clever. There'll be a very clear chain of command and there'll be a very clear process of who's feeding back what, even from the roles where they've got iPads near the bench. Christian Wilson will be looking at stuff. Other coaches will be looking at stuff. It'll all be clearly defined, but it's allowing the coaches to be a lot more clear and concise in their information when they are giving that to the players and the players can, can digest it. And a big thing of this is who often decides how and when players get feedback or information, it's always the coach. What if we could create environments where the players could decide how and when they receive feedback? And I think that's more powerful because, again, you're giving more autonomy to them. And in order to do that, you probably need to be more what you said. And actually, you've, you've done most of your work in training and now you, you, you know, you're enjoying the, the orchestra, you're enjoying the show. It's not to say you can't facilitate or you can't step in when needed because, of course, you can but you're actually empowering your players to solve problems. 
Mm. Yeah, it's something we've done at uh, our academy, Gerard. So we were working the week to a Wednesday game, they're in Monday, Tuesday, and probably two out of every three games out, they will do the team talk. We'll go through our team intentions. We've oh, got the out, and if we're playing a low block, right, what are the positions? So really giving the ownership to the players. You know, we've got good knowledge of what we're talking about, but our job is to help them build that knowledge as well. Uh, and it's something that's been positive and, and teach them to be leaders, you know, in the dressing room at oh, 16. Right years of age so that's something we've done at our academy really you know the second part of the season because we've done a lot of work with them to get developed game insight but it's something that they enjoy uh and developing those leadership skills that they're gonna need not just in football but in life as well 100 and you know how often do people do that how often do people let players lead the halftime talk or is it always the coach leading the halftime talk can they set the challenge to the players lead it you know yeah, yeah. We, we often talk about the big two drivers being ego and paranoia. And Spencer and I have had this chat about before about how actually the worst place to watch a game unfold is actually right on the touchline on the halfway line. Yeah, it's the worst, worst, yeah. Like why would you why would you possibly stand there? And and what's the real defining motivation to carry on being there? As Spencer said, snapping in rugby, they're, they're where they can see everything going on. Yeah. Uh, Really interesting, really yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's mad because if you ever see me coast, normally, or whenever I go watch a game, I'm at the highest I can be and stand, just because, as you said, you can see more of the picture. But I think then it's having that balance of knowing, because obviously there are players who respond to that presence where you're on the... There's a, there's a lot of studies that have looked into the psychology of it. So when you're at the, the, the side of the pitch, yes, it's not the best vantage point, but sometimes players feel that connection with the coach and that support that he's there, he's got our back, versus that they might not be aware of you, even if they know you're in the crowd. Okay. Not aware. Yeah. So it's mad. And I think it's how and when you, do you do that? But yeah, I'm with you 100%. Yeah. 100%. I was recently um, working for a semi-professional team, Gerard, and uh, the assistant manager role. And what I used to do is go where, where the chairman has, and they had pizza and stuff at halftime, so it was quite nice, probably about 20 feet up in the air. And I'd got the, the iPhone connected to another yeah. coach, and I was yeah. feeding out there, so the manager was still the presence on the touchline, but we had a really from behind the goal as well, uh, and that's that did work well for us. And do you know what's mad is that people think that a lot of this is new or revolutionary, but Sam Allardyce and people before him were doing this back in the nineties. Ron Atkinson was. I remember Ron Atkinson yeah. at Sheffield Wednesday, always next to the chairman in the director's box. Yeah, and they'd have an earpiece in it, or back then, blooming telephones, it radio into the bench or whatever. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're forgetting the main role of a, a, of a head coach or manager, and that's to get stuck into the fourth official, right? So he, <laughs> he needs to be down there. He needs to be down there. Get down there, yeah. Yeah. Neil fantastic. Just, uh, just on that, Gerard, so in terms of your, your approach, so, you know, you're, you're pretty much, we've touched on it a, a little bit, but, uh, you know, your, your more recent context where you were coaching, how would you go about doing a pre-match and preparing uh, the players for the game ahead? I think it varies in every context you're in, but there's probably general trends, whether I've worked at international level or been like an assistant co-coaching or academy level or, or whatever level, grassroots, non-league, semi-pro, in that obviously you're managing your training load and you're trying to design the week in preparation for when that game is. And, and you're always thinking about, of course, you're thinking about the next game, but you're also thinking about the next, next game and who are the best players to play in that environment and what players might be really necessary to play in that next show? Um, and who needs what game time? Is it going to be 50% in this position or 
25% in this. Of course, you can't plan everything because a lot of it will be instinctive on the day, that reflection in action, that ability to go, do you know what? We might need to get a sub on here or we might need to change something to, to counteract the opposite potentially. But I would try and prepare everything in the week, loadings, spacing, um, times we even train to be as representative to that real game as, as possible. So if we're kicking off at seven o'clock or 7.45, are we training in an evening before? Potentially yep. however many nights before, um, just to climatize the body and the sleep patterns and things like that. Just a preference for me. It doesn't mean it has to be that way. I know a lot of the top coaches, you know, like Klopp and what have you, will do similar stuff. Yeah. If you know you're playing against a certain team and they're defending no wider than the width for the penalty area and no deeper than the, the depth is like 12 yards or whatever. Well, they're the, they're the challenges that you need to design your practices, you know, because that's the problem you're going to face. So how do you observe the opposition, use analysis, use video, use whatever you can, but then recreate some of those challenges in your match preparation to make it look as real to their challenge that they're going to face. So if we know we're playing against Atletico Madrid or whoever, as an example or whatever, again, how are you how are you doing that? Because then that's preparing the players for, wow, how do I unlock that low block? How do I find that challenge or whatever? So I would do a lot of that whilst also in the same week, building in time for individual, well, it should all be individualised training, but building in time for individual specific stuff and informal learning. Because there's always that danger that, and certainly the higher you go, but grassroots coaches do this for some mad reason. The, the, the coaching in reaction to the last game and the, and the next game. But then the danger then becomes is that we've conceded from corners, right, we're working on corners. When you get better at finishing, right, we're doing that now. It just becomes very reactive. And for the players, there's no uh, real opportunity to develop or get what they need. And it's always in reaction to the next game, as I said, or in response to the previous I think there's still a duty of care that, yeah, you've got your match prep and there'll be certain stuff that you'll cover in the days leading up to that game. But actually, how can you, whether it's however often you eat, you know, you might only train twice a week. You might train every day of the week. It depends. But when you are training, how much time is dedicated to individual players and their development within that 60-minute, 90-minute practice? How are you designing stuff that's relevant to you know, Ryan McKnight or, or Spencer Ferd, because that's really important. And if you can interleave that in your team prep, that's really key. Because now not only are you doing your team prep stuff and you're getting your team tactics right, but you're getting your individual tactics and individual development as well. And actually Spencer's walking away going, I got something out of that practice tonight. Even though you're working on breaking lines or whatever it was, yeah. if he wants to work on finishing, he's got his finishing. So, yeah, that's how I would do it. Yeah. And in, in terms of like the match day as well, I mean, I've been in dressing rooms where I've thrown, thrown another one in and the manager goes, minutes, and, uh, you know, really speaking about what's just happened. But, I mean, you know, for, for you, how should a half-time team talk look? Well, I think one of the first things you should do is you should always be making notes, but you should also try and look at your notes. The beauty now is we've got a lot of video now. I mean... I've always got my iPad near me. You know, even now on this call, I'm always ready. You, you should have stuff ready so that you've got information so you can be as objective as you can and make notes because that's going to guide you and hopefully guide the players. I would be having chats with the coaches first. 
before speaking to the players, allow players to decompress rather than jump, jump on them straight away. That's not to say that you can't jump on them because there's sometimes where if you do that, sometimes it can have a bit of, if you need to, you can have a reaction. But I would typically let the players decompress, talk amongst themselves. I would always set challenges where you might have like units together. So maybe the goalkeeper and the defence are talking together, midfielder talking with the attackers or whatever it may be. And you're getting answers from the players. Who's causing us a problem? You know, are they playing through, around or over? Who's their danger player? Who's their key player? They should know because they've been playing the game. They probably have a better interpretation of the game than we do. They should do because they're playing. So try and draw from the answers from the players. And then I would always make sure that when I've got their feedback and I've had them exchange within each other, you know, peer-to-peer learning, I would typically make sure that there's literally one or two key messages from me or things to think about that will help them in the... In the next half, but I'd have that conversation with you guys. So if we were that free team, are we all agreeing on what those messages are and who's going to say what and when? Once I've done that overview, if I'm the head coach per se, it might be that then Ryan's getting into individuals and giving real individuals what they may need, potentially. Um, And then, because how often do we see talks where I'm like going, oh, Spencer, you gave the ball away and you do da 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 Ryan's sat there thinking, well, this isn't about me. And now Ryan's daydreaming. And like next week, you know, your 15 minutes are up and you've got to go out and nobody knows what they're doing. So I would always try and be really logical in my timing. Brilliant. And of course, this is all central to the PhD you're doing, uh, Gerard, on how verbal instruction can guide players. So I think as we head edge towards the end of the, of the webinar, how's that going? What are you learning? And how's that feeding into your business that's displayed in your background there? Great. Obviously, everything uh, ties in perfectly. I mean, the, the, the ongoing research that I'm doing is I'm looking into clubs, I'm looking at in, individuals. We've done a lot of good studies. We've done uh, semi-structured interviews with coaches, working across a number of different levels, from grassroots development and elite high performing. And we found that typically coaches aren't as reflective as they thought or aren't as accurate in their reflections as they thought they were. Certainly when you measure behaviour, um, you know, they might think they ask loads of good questions, but they actually don't. Um, and the players will have a different imp- impression of them as well. It's often a good question to ask, but ha- ha- you know, if I was to ask the players, what would they say about you? How would they describe a, a Ryan session? Um, we found that coaches will tend to impose their perception upon the player versus trying to tap into what the player has seen. And I think that's really interesting. And of course, you know, a lot of the other stuff that we're going into around transitional information, how you can use feedback to guide where the players are looking is, is, is huge and it's an area that's, that's growing. And obviously inspired a lot of my own curiosity with the, with the platform where coaches can access more courses, personalise their learning, set their own targets, learn anything that they need to learn um, to stretch themselves and go beyond the X's and O's, which is what you, you typically get just on a, a traditional course. I think with uh, the platform as well, Gerard, and uh, hats off to you, trying to translate academia, which is very, very complex sometimes, you know, in, into us as coaches, you know, or say the real world, as I call it. And it, I think it's very difficult. There's lots of great research that happens in the academic world. But when it comes to people like me, it's, oh, I don't actually understand what it means. So I think, you know, hats off to you. It's great that someone is trying to do that, make it simpler, you know, to digest. Yeah, that was something I wanted to do is bridge the gap between the academic and the, and the football and make it really easy for people to understand, for sure, for sure. 
Cool. Well, make sure you put a link to the site or download link or anything like that in uh, yes. as well, John. Let's just get through some of the questions before uh, we let people uh, go. Interesting questions uh, from uh, from Vit. Are there any particular books that you would recommend uh, around this sort of topic of visual exploration or any associated topics that you think people should go out and read? Yeah, I think there's a lot of good work. I mean, people have mentioned, uh, and I've, I've put it in the group chat, Nick Winkleman brought out a book around, uh, I think it was, was it Language of Coaching? Yeah. Um, so there's stuff around that. Obviously, I'm going to encourage Great people book. to check out, yeah. So I'm going to encourage people to check out my own research, of course. There's papers that I've done that are real in simple terms. Um, look into people like Gabriel Wolf. Try and have a look into different perspectives as well, because a lot of coaches look at coaching from, you know, people have heard these terms like constraints-led approach or uh, game-based learning or ecological dynamics or information processing or whatever, naturalistic decision-making. If you haven't heard those terms, Google them find out what they're about. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there, but you'll probably realize that the way that you believe in the game or how you coach, whether it's, no, you've got to give them an answer and then do this or that, or whether you've got to do this. You know, there's a book by Klein. Uh, I think his name's Gary Klein. Um, what was it? Shadows. And I'll get the title of it. It'll come to my head. But uh, again, these are based on certain... Uh, Streetlights and Shadows, it was called, Streetlights and Shadows. And that was a book on decision-making and adaptive decision-making. But that's based on a, a certain, uh, I'd use the word paradigm, a certain way of thinking. It might not resonate with you, but I would say be curious. Because it's mm. not to say that, you know, my way or your way is, is the only way, but actually just find out what, what's everyone saying and come with your own conclusion, but do as much research as you can. <clears throat> A quick a question off Aaron. Um, he's talking about the 60-minute session per week for an adult. Would it be more beneficial to design practices that offer high levels of individual cognitive stresses over phases of play, tactical and unit work? Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm understanding the question correctly, I would say everything, I mean, cognition is going to be the biggest game changer right now. And it's been identified for a while because the game's becoming more and more difficult and complex. So we need to develop players that do that. And it's not so much that, um, you know, certain tactics or formations or whatever are the only way. We should be looking at the principles that we're trying to reinforce. And actually, that's what he's identified there is a huge part of that. Um, so how do you design that in your practices would be key. Um, and I know there was a question before, did we answer it or not? Was around, oh, I might be coming up now, actually, I might be skipping the step. The solutions versus challenges. Yeah, go on, you go for it. Yeah, so really interesting question. And I think, you know, just reading it out loud. Don't, so what to do? Uh, don't give them solutions rather than challenges without telling them that this is right or wrong. So they find their best solution. I would say that just have an understanding of that if you're giving loads of answers, there's a danger, the consequence being that they're always dependent on your answer, but your version of the answer is your perception. But what if the player saw a better solution? Often than not, they might have seen something that we haven't seen. But from our vantage point, using what Ryan said about earlier where you stood, from our angle, it looks, ah, that's the best solution. 
but maybe from theirs there was something else. So often I would lead with, in, even if they can't articulate and tell me, I might say to the player, close your eyes, tell me what you saw, tell me what you see. And I might say, oh, I saw this player over here or get them to describe or get them to try and notice things and tell you what they notice. And that can be a challenge. And I would say I, I would be more towards setting challenges rather than giving solutions. You should be a problem setter rather than a problem solver because you're developing players' ability to figure it out themselves. Sick. And a final question, and we ask this of all our guests on, um, and I'm just going to add to it based on what we've learned tonight. So what, what advice would you give to coaches who are looking to improve towards their career in the game? And a second question, I mean, you're living proof, really. Uh, isn't it an exciting time to be a football coach? Because there's so many different areas and niches to go and become an expert in these days. Yeah, I would say be as curious as you can because you're going to get loads of experience and you should get loads of experience coaching. You know, that's the best experience you can get. I've got a million and one qualifications. We all have. We've all done different things. I'm a qualified teacher. I've done my master's. That shouldn't replace contact time on the grass. I would say coach, my advice would be coaching as many different age groups as you can, formats of the game, stages, disability, whatever it may be, men, women, boys, girls, for as long as you can, because you're just accumulating more and more uh, different challenges in how you overcome them. And it's just going to be better for you. And if you look at some of the top coaches in the world, a lot of them have started in the youth game. Michael Beale started off with Brazilian soccer schools, coaching youth, coaching academy, running his own stuff, then doing Chelsea, and has gone on through Liverpool, Sao Paulo, to now Rangers, and obviously now Aston Villa. You know, to many other coaches like him, they've started across gaining these experiences. So I would say do that. That'd be my advice, getting as much experience as you can. And then, yeah, great time to be a coach because I think you've almost got to ask yourself, what's going to be your unfair advantage? What's your competitive advantage? What, what's going to give you that edge? And for some coaches, it might be looking into set pieces. For some coaches, it might be looking into whatever it may be, you know. I wanted to be a specialist, so I want to be this guy who in years to come is recognised as the go-to guy for how you can become more effective and efficient in your communication and your feedback to guide search. Because I recognise that feedback is a dominant coaching behaviour and we're not very good at it. And search is key because you've got to be able to scan in order to recognise what to do. So that's where I, I was curious with that. For other coaches, it might be something else. So explore what your curiosity is and, and be as good as you can. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, Fencer, again, the time just flies, doesn't it? The time just flies. Yeah. Uh, but I'll hand over to you to uh, to wrap up and talk about next month's guest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, Gerard, thank you ever so much. You know, so many takeaways. I mean, you know, we'll start at the top of the show about language and the importance of that and how we really need to educate our players about visual search and its importance. Keeping it simple. You know, keywords, uh, not complicated. And there's something you've touched on quite a few times throughout this evening. Um, is asking the question to players, what did you see? Uh, what yeah. we see is the execution of the decision. We don't know why they've made the decision or what communications led to that. And I think, you know, the different vantage points, we're seeing things that are different to what the players see on the pitch. So I think that's a, a really important question. 
uh, that we ask our players. But I'm really looking forward to listening to this one back because there's so much uh, that we can take from it. So thank you ever so much. Um, next month, we um, we welcome Johnny McKinstry, um, which the uh, theme is Managing in Africa. Now, Johnny's a pro-licensed coach. was the youngest ever international manager at just 27 years of age at Sierra Leone and, and took them to a FIFA ranking top 50. Um, so he's most recently been at Uganda, where I think he won something like 68% of his game. So a great guy, and uh, we're looking forward to welcoming him Johnny on Monday the 25th of April so we will uh, send the invite out with the podcast from uh, this evening's guest Gerard that should be with you uh, by Friday and uh, yeah thank you ever so much for the great attendance tonight for the brilliant questions and again a massive thanks to our guest Gerard. Thanks Gerard good evening everybody no. hope you have a lovely evening and see you next month. No, I'll see you next month you've got a great speaker in Johnny that's going to be great Brilliant. See you, everyone. Thank you so much for tonight. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye.